A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before I get to the topic of this episode about emancipation, the Jewish people in modern times, and starting with the French Jewish community where emancipation starts and why it's important and what the story and development and the process was, I just want to um, make a few comments about from letters uh, from the... Uh, listeners of Jewish History Soundbites, and recently I had a mini-series on Rabarin Cutler, so it was interesting that I pointed out that that the uh, Lakewood Yeshiva started in, based Medishkova Yeshiva Lakewood, started in White Plains, and I discussed Rav Nassim Wachtfeigel's role in that founding, and I got a couple of uh, comments from listeners about how it was important that I pointed it out, and one even thanked me especially. But it turns out that um, that there was another figure involved. So I thought that I was, uh, you know, taking uh, taking 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 to task the common knowledge that Rabban Cutler was there from the beginning, and by pointing out that Reb Nassim Vachtfeigel was involved. But it turns out that it was actually someone else entirely who really started it. Someone who I had never even heard of. I looked into after a listener uh, pointed this out to me. So thank you for this knowledgeable and dedicated listener for uh, helping out with this information. There was a fellow by the name of Hillel Bishko from Williamsburg who had a popular library of Jewish books that the yeshiva students at that time would would uh, would use. And he wanted to open this uh, kailal, and he opened it in White Plains, and he was the founder. And on the original letterhead of Beis Medrash Gavaya, it lists this Rabhilil Bishko, who was involved in a lot of Jewish projects at that time. This was not his only initiative, um, both in Europe and then later on in the United States. A very active individual. Um, and he founded Bismarck Gavaya. And he actually, his, the first Reish Kel that he hired was the Lamja Rosh Yeshiva, Bichil Mordechai Gordon, an old Slabatka Talmud, Rosh Yeshiva of Lamja, was in America fundraising and then ended up living there for many years and was affiliated with the Lamja branch in Petach Tikva for a long time, a very interesting and fascinating uh, individual. And Rebichil Mordechai Gordon was the nominated as the Reish Kel, who was also on the letterhead for a period of time during the beginning. Um, so this Rabhil Bishko was actually 
the uh, founder of Chinuch uh, uh sorry, of uh, excuse me, of of Lake of Beis in, in White Plains at that time, and eventually he brings Rabaran in, and uh, and uh, and then with the move to Lakewood, and then Rabaran uh, t- uh, took over at the leadership at the helm. Another correction I received was I related a story about how um, the way I said it over was that Rabaran had received. Uh, um, a sum of money for officiating at a wedding, and when was to, he was told that um, that it's for his own personal use and not for the Lakewood Yeshiva, so he decided to donate it to Chinuch Atzmai. And the uh, correction I received was that it was actually with his son, Reb Schneer Cutler, and the sum was $2,000, a significant sum of money, and, um, and, and Reb Schneer decided not to keep it for himself, but since he was thought it was for the Lakewood Yeshiva, but when he was told that it was for himself, he decided to give it to, donate it to Chinuch Atzmai. And, uh, you know, again, great people. So the story is said about Rabar, and it turns out Rup Schneer, it says a lot about both of them, the father and the son, about who they were. were. Okay, um, we'll take take it, we'll t- other other letters we'll save for another time, because I want to get into the emancipation. Um Emancipation, I give a, a lot of lectures uh, lately, and I'm available for lectures and and uh, sponsorships for these episodes and and uh, and stuff like that, so you could be in touch with me about all kinds of things, lectures, virtual tours, sponsorships. But one of the primary topics that uh, both the audiences want to hear and what I like, enjoy it on is changes that uh, swept over the Jewish people in the modern era. And all different types of changes, uh, spiritual movements like Hasidim and the Yeshiva movement, and political movements like Zionism and other things, immigration to new countries, new horizons, new vistas, and things like emancipation and, and uh, other, other uh, changes like that, which uh, kind of defines us uh, who we are today. And there's, if there's one thing, probably more than anything else, that that uh, was a change in modern times for the Jewish people, that was emancipation. I would, I would guess, venture to say, uh, if I dare do so, that emancipation is probably the most fundamental and greatest change that overcame the Jewish people in modern times, and something that we don't speak about enough. So this episode would just be an introductory uh, episode. I hope to uh, give more on it in the future, and if it's a topic that you like, you can be in touch with me about sponsorship. But the reason is, is because it's something we take for granted today. Emancipation means citizenship, equal rights, voting, uh, to, the right to vote, uh, um, equality before the law, uh, the equal right to education or opportunity in, in, in the business world. All these stuff that we take pretty much for granted in Western democracies, or Israel, which you know considers itself for some reason a Western democracy, or any anything else, the the it's 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 something that we really take for granted, and it's important to understand that uh, how that developed because it simply didn't exist until two hundred years ago, um, for anyone, especially not for the Jews. Um, so to to, to 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 and the influence that it had on the development of the Jewish community. And the change in the structure of the Jewish community, and the 
the far-reaching consequences of uh, integration, acculturation, secularization. Again, uh, things that we take for granted that exist within the Jewish world over the course of the 20th, now 21st century, that emancipation has had much more of an effect on integration, acculturation, and eventually secularization, or even possibly assimilation, much more than other movements such as the Haskalah, such as the Reform. We tend to give them much more credit than they deserve. But um, emancipation and what foreign governments, what sovereign non-Jewish external forces, governments, and technology and industrial revolution, all the things like that, definitely had much more of an effect on on, uh, on Jewish integration than than any internal Jewish movement, such as the Haskalah. Um, so the, 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 the emancipation begins in France, so we're going to focus on that uh, this time. The French Revolution, with its value systems of liberty and equality and brotherhood and uh, rationality and getting rid of the old monarchist uh, and, and uh, you know, religious-based uh, feudal system and all that, uh, the, the brings brings with it the Republicans, the Jacobians, all the the uh, movement within the French Revolution, and the literally to overturn the world and its values um, changed changed the way modern man and the Western culture started to look at its the role of state, the role of the nation, and the role of the citizens, the people within the state. And uh, and its re- and the relation and obligations that they have to each other, so the revolution leads to a decision to grant emancipation both to all the different classes within French non-Jewish society, and what comes to become a dominant feature of 19th century uh, political life in Europe is that the Jewish minority, which again is pretty much the minority of Europe at that time, you do have Christian minorities in Catholic countries, the Protestants are a minority, in Protestant countries the Catholics are a minority, but in a sense the Jews are always a certain outsider. And the measuring stick of revolutionary fervor in European nations of the 19th century, and the measuring stick of liberal policies, and the measuring stick of what type of government it is, especially with the rise of Romanticism and nationalism towards the end of the 19th century, is the measure of emancipation uh, uh, that they give to its minority Jewish population. So the Jewish question becomes a huge question of the 19th century, and that, of course, you know, explodes with the with the at the end of this at the close of the century, a century after the revolution in France once again with the Dreyfus trial because it becomes a political issue between the liberals and the conservatives within the society with the liberals leading the pro Dreyfus uh, um, 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 movement uh, um, because it becomes a symbol of what what the values of the uh, value system of the revolution. Uh, is and it starts right away. You know, after the revolution, there's debates, uh, for instance, about how, uh, should we grant citizenship to the Jewish communities of Alsace, Alsace Lorraine, Strasbourg, which is areas which are always in between France and Germany. It's is it German territory? Is it French territory? So the Jews who live there are they really French? Maybe they're really German, and maybe we'll give the Jews of will grant emancipation to the Jews of the Paris area or northern France, but maybe not to Alsace, uh, maybe not to the Jews of Strasbourg. Maybe they're different. 
And, and this becomes a question. What makes someone different? What makes someone more French and less French? And then with the movement past the revolutionary era, when Napoleon rise, with Napoleon's rise to power, the Jewish question arises once again. Napoleon, which is a fascinating story in itself, Napoleon convenes a Sanhedrin, the Grand Sanhedrin. And the Grand Sanhedrin is, is, is a, a very interesting uh, proposal to have a bunch of Jewish both laymen and rabbis and all types of rabbis, or traditional rabbis and reform rabbis. And there's the head of the Sanhedrin is a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yosef David Zinsheim, who is a traditional rabbi. A lot of the large percentage of the rabbis did come from Alsatz, which was the whole Strasbourg area was a much more traditional or what we would call today orthodox area. He wrote a sefer Yad David, which is I think only published recently. So he's the chairman of the this supposed Sanhedrin, the Grand Sanhedrin, and and Napoleon gave them, submitted to, or Napoleon's government rather, submitted them 12 questions that they had to answer uh, about, the, mainly, a lot of it, some of, it, some of them were about um, uh, internal Jewish uh, questions, but mainly about the relation of the Jewish people to their non-Jewish neighbors, and especially vis-a-vis the, the, the government, the, the sovereign, the, the state. Um, perhaps the most important question that was submitted to the uh, assembly was, do the Jews born in France and treated by the law as French citizens acknowledge France as their country? Are they bound to defend it? Are they bound to obey the laws and follow the directions of the civil code? And the answer that the assembly gives is that the Jews in France are, have received emancipation and citizenship, equal rights. We're completely French. We speak French. We, uh, and this is what, 15 years after, 18 years after the revolution, even less of years after they've re, you know, received citizenship, were French. And they say an amazing line in there, and they're written, you know, they summarize their written answers. An amazing line. And they say, basically, uh, the summary of it is, the gist of it is, is that a, Jew, a French Jew, if he would be in England, and he would be amongst English, Jews, fellow Jews, he would feel less comfortable and less at home because he's not among Frenchmen. Whereas if he's in France, he's amongst his home and his people. And that's, and that's how they saw themselves. And that's definitely what they wanted to tell Napoleon and his government. And, and that's what, you know, emancipation was able to, uh, to accomplish. Um, so the, that's, that's another stage. Uh, now there's the post Napoleon, Napoleon, you know, with the, his sweeping across Europe, he brings different reforms in Germany and in Austria and in the countries of, of, of Europe. And there's this, when, when he's, once he's defeated um, after Waterloo, he, there's a regression. It goes backwards, especially in Germany. Uh, all the Napoleonic era reforms, you know, go back and are rolled back. And, and the Jews across Europe uh, have to wait quite a bit of time, especially in Germany, for, for uh, emancipation. Of course, the majority of the Jewish people lives in Eastern Europe, in, in, uh, and they don't receive emancipation till the Russian Revolution in 1917. But, um, but the Jews of Austria, the Galicia Jews, receive in 1867. And the German Jews receive also the last quarter of the, uh, uh, of, uh, of the 19th century. But if we go back to France, there's a rise of a very interesting individual, a fellow by the name of Adolf Cremieux, Cremieux, uh, and he he um, becomes a major politician in 
19th century France, and he's Jewish, and he comes to symbolize the uh, the success of the emancipation, the success of the revolution, of the integration of Jews into French society, and the way French Jews t- start to see themselves um, in, 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 as far as their role amongst, among the Jewish people. Because Cremieux is one of the leaders, I mentioned this in the episode on the Damascus blood libel, he's the one who goes down, also Moses Montefiore uh, from England, um, in the 1840 Damascus blood libel to, to, uh, be, you know, to make it an international Jewish question and defending Jewish rights wherever they are. Cremieux is also part of, and this is an expression of, of again, of the emancipation, uh, is in 1860, the founding of the first international Jewish organization that sees the Jewish people as one entity, and that the, the Jews who have received emancipation and are in a better situation than a lot of their brethren around the world, having a responsibility to them, and that, and that organization is called the Alliance. The Alliance, uh, the, uh, in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew name of it is Kol Yisrael Chaverim, Kiach. And they, everyone, the Jews are responsible for one another. And we have to invest in helping Jews around the world, in education, in, in showing them how the success of French Jewry is in becoming French language, French culture, and uh, and the the success of 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 the uh, post emancipatory uh, world for the Jewish community, and therefore they see themselves as a, somewhat of a, of a vanguard. In eighteen seventy, Cremieux scores another success. Algeria, which was a French colony that had was considered, as far as the French government was concerned, not 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 a regular colony, but actually French territory. Um, so he succeeds in convincing a law to go through the French Parliament that Algerian Jewry, Algerian Sephardic Jewry, should become French citizens. The Cremieux Law, um, and it, what is a revolutionary moment because they he sees it as the goal to get emancipation for Jewry all over, and here he has an opportunity for Algerian Jewry. Not only that, but if we see them as French, and French Jews can be loyal French citizens, so Algerian Jews can be loyal French citizens. And uh, the Muslims in Algeria do not receive citizenship. So the Algerian Jewry becomes an elite, which causes resentment, which has long, long long-term effects well into the 20th century, to the post-colonial era. The Algerian uh, long war against uh, French colonialism in the 1950s and 60s, and it has big ramifications for the Algerian Jewish community, who are French. Not only that, but it uh, it causes it, for the French colonists who are who are Christian French, and they come and they encounter Algerian Jewry, who they see as not very different from their Muslim neighbors. And they say, "Why are these people privileged to have French citizenship?" So both from the colonists, the European colonists, Italian and French colonists primarily, and from the Muslim majority who does not receive French citizenship, this emancipated Jewish community um, is in an interesting situation. Another stop on the way that I would point out, even though it's not directly related to the Jews, is but I find it just very interesting, is a speech by an individual named Ernest Renan. 
Ernest Renan was a, a French intellectual of the 19th century, and he uh, non-Jewish, and he's you know a scholar of, of Semitic languages and wrote all kinds of books and uh, you know a bit of philosopher also. And he gives a speech in 1882 in the Sorbonne in Paris. And the name of the speech is "What is a Nation?" By 1882, there's the rise of you know the ideals of the revolution have been not abandoned, but uh, the age of liberalism and and uh, and rationalism and all that has changed in Europe in the in the spirit of romanticism and modern nationalism, which are connected. And and he's grappling with that idea. He's grappling with the with the idea of nationalism and how it fits in to the liberalist ideals of the revolution. And the name of his speech is "What is a Nation?" And he tries to define it. Whereas German philosophers were already at the last quarter of the twentieth century defining a nation by objective criteria like race or ethnic groupings. Others were saying religion, uh, those characteristics. And Renan uh, negates those ways of defining the nation, and he formulates a new way of defining what nationalism is, is that it's the existence of, of a nation is a daily plebiscite. Those are his words. In other words, a, a will of the people to continue living together and wanting to do more together. And it's a constant will of the people, and therefore he comes to the conclusion that nationalism can have a beginning and it can have an end. And he makes a prediction that one day when it ends, it will be replaced by a European confederation of European states. Um, and he says that other uh, uh, basis of nationalism, such as race, such as borders, geographical borders, will lead to untold bloodshed in the next century, if you use that as the basis of nationalism, as opposed to my idea that it's a daily plebiscite of the will of the people to continue to work together um, um, irrespective of their background. So again, the Jews aren't mentioned explicitly in the speech, but they're obviously hovering in the shadows, and as, 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 being that they're the ultimate minority uh, in, in France and in Europe at that time. The next question we want to examine is, does emancipation make anti-Semitism disappear? Again, I'm being very, very general in this episode, and there's a lot of details to go into, perhaps, and new opportunities will come up to do further episodes on this topic, so we'll go into uh, more details. Um, does it make it this anti-Semitism disappear? And it doesn't. In fact, modern anti-Semitism rises and expands, and the disillusionment with emancipation, along with the fact that the majority of the Jewish people in Europe are living in the Tsarist Russian Empire and never receive emancipation, what they're trying to, and it never happens, leads to many to turn inwards towards towards uh, uh, Jewish nationalism. And Leon Pinsker writes in 1882, auto-emancipation. The Jews' emancipation failed, either in Western Europe because it didn't make anti-Semitism disappear, or in Eastern Europe where they never received emancipation. So the Jews have to emancipate themselves and they have to become their own nation. The same thing with Moses Hess. We go back to France. France uh, Hess is a Jewish Frenchman, later lives in Germany, and he... Uh, he, uh, he's first. He's a socialist. He's friends with uh, Marx and, and Friedrich Engels, and he um, eventually has a fallout with them. But it, he discovers his Jewish identity, and his and leads him also to to lead to the idea of Jewish nationalism. And he's one of the proto-Zionists uh, of, of of the you know pre-Zionist era. Um, 
but um, but in the in that in that context of of Eastern Europe not receiving emancipation, as and versus Western Europe where the Jews did receive emancipation. So we have the interesting situation where once the immigration begin, emigration begins from the Russian Empire to other countries, so you have a Russian Jewish community establishing themselves in France and looking for those equal rights, seeking French citizenship. Rabbi Stroll Salanter, who who lived in Western Europe for most of his, his later years, he becomes the rabbi, unofficial rabbi of the Russian Jewish community in France, in Paris, for two years from 1880 to 1882. And he, and he is trying to connect them, trying to see, well, what does emancipation do? What does living, living in the West do? Uh, what does that do to Jewish traditional life? Um, and that's, and that's a big question because traditional life seems to be eroding. There's a interesting rabbi who's the rabbi for many, many years in first in Paris, and then he's the chief rabbi of the French Orthodox Jewish community, Rabbi Tzadok Khan. And, uh, he's actually the last government, uh, appointee rabbi because two years after his passing, the French government adopts a separation of church and state, so the rabbi is no longer a government employee, but Rabbi Tzadok Khan was. He was the, recognized by the government, and he's, he's definitely a, a fascinating story of his role in the Alliance and Zionism and influencing the Rothschilds to support the settlement in Palestine. And he's, he's actually Dreyfus's rabbi. He was his Masader Kedushin, so he was very involved in the Dreyfus trial as well. And, uh, and, uh, you know, trying to prove his innocence. And, uh, um, um, so that's, that's, uh, again, an expression of, of, uh, a rabbi, an Orthodox traditional rabbi, uh, in the post-emancipation world. But what I want to use in that last few minutes is to to use the Rothschild family as a prism of what the emancipation means, both as far as the opportunities it gives, as far as an anti-Semitic backlash, as far as what it does to Jewish traditional life. And it's a perfect example because Rothschild became a paradigm of Jewish success. And it's in theory, it's the success of the emancipation. The Rothschilds originate from Germany and Frankfurt, but they have branches all over Europe, and the French branch becomes a very prominent branch. You know, the shtetl Jews in Eastern Europe used to talk about Rothschild, like the, like in the Lakewood uh, coffee room, they talk about Rechnitz today. You know, the Lakewood coffee, I remember, I recall with a fondly, my, the one's man, uh, El's man I spent in Lakewood, I, I think I spent more time in the coffee room than I did in the, in the base measures. It was, I mean, I have only positive memories. It was so much fun. It was probably the last time I knew current events, and since then I've been stuck in history. But um, you know, everything goes down, and and everything is discussed and analyzed, and, and uh, amazing. So shtetl Jews used to talk like that about Rothschild, and you know, you know, Shalom Aleichem puts uh, into the mouth of Tuvia the milkman about uh, if I were Rothschild. And the Jewish humor is full of, if I were Rothschild, I'd be richer than Rothschild because I'd still be a tailor and make some money on the side and all, all kinds of drugs like that. Rothschild became a symbol of the Jewish success. They're the biggest banking family in Europe. They're literally the wealthiest people in the world. Nathan Rothschild in London was the wealthiest person in the world at the time. They receive titles from titles, right? Hereditary titles. They become Vons and Sirs. And uh, from first the Austrian government, later the Queen Victoria bestows it on the English branch, and they they you know they're they're among the European aristocracy. 
they make it. They're, they have they have branches in Naples, in Italy, in Paris, in Austria, in in, uh, in I'm sorry, in Vienna, in Paris, in in uh, Frankfurt, which closes down in the next generation because there's no male heirs and they want to keep it a very strong family business and they you know they, they keep it very internal. Uh, everyone tries to marry their first cousins, the first uh, two or three generations, till they start assimilating and intermarrying, which is part of you know, what the story is of the Rothschilds, and uh, and they, they are up the streets. They become the leadership of the Jewish people, right? Edmund de Rothschild is the one who supports the first Zionist colonies of the first Aliyah and all kinds of other philanthropic uh, uh, efforts. Uh, the one who receives, who's the recipient of the Balfour Declaration is Walter Rothschild, uh, who's, who's the natural address. It sent his home address from Lord Balfour. And he's, you know, Walter Rothschild is a member of parliament himself. His father, Lionel Rothschild, was the first Jewish member of the British parliament. And the British law had to be changed to allow him to go into parliament because the oath of office until that time was on a Christian faith. And they actually had to pass a law through British parliament to change that, to enable Rothschild to make, to take the oath. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, the Frankfurt branch disappears um, eventually, the you know in, in the 20th century, the Austrian uh, fa- family uh, has to go into exile because the Nazis Nazi takeover of Austria in 1938 they takes has them take over all their banks and assets. Um, that's much later, of course. But the the French and and uh, and the um, and the English branches of of the Rothschild family. You know, Nathan Rothschild, like I said, is the wealthiest person in Europe in the world. And he was, you know, he financed Duke Wellington in in, uh, in his battles against Napoleon, and he um, and there was all kinds of anti-Semitic myths uh, made up about it that he took advantage of it, and which Neil Ferguson and others have disproved. But but the the uh, the idea was is that he he um, he his brother-in-law, by the way, was Moses Montefiore, the other wealthy uh, Jew of, of 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 England at the time. They they both married sisters, Cones. And um, and Nathan uh, Nathan Rothschild, um, his uh, the his 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 power and his you know their their banking empire that they create and finance and the businesses that they're involved with there in in mining and in and in in in, in all different rising companies they they funded Cecil Rhodes and his. In his African, uh, they basically the Rothschilds are basically responsible for, for founding the the colony of Rhodesia. Um, today, I think it's Zimbabwe. Um, the De Beer uh, Diamond Company was funded by invested in by the Rothschilds. Other all the great companies of the 19th century world of industry and finance, high finance, international finance was the Rothschild. They're the most powerful, you know, banking in the. In the world, involved in the Russo-Japanese War, on the Japanese government side, buying up Japanese war bonds, all kinds of other things. Now, the so so the the uh, the the result of that is is that they both um, on both sides they take a leadership position in the Jewish world, but on the other hand, as the generations continue, there's a certain integration, acculturation, even assimilation, even intermarriage, even descendants who aren't Jewish. Um, there's, on the other hand, the Rothschild becomes a stereotype, an anti-Semitic stereotype. There's all types of tropes that there is all conspiracy theories. They control the world and they control the governments and 
and we see it later expressed in Nazi anti-Semitism in the uh, document, Nazi documentary, The Eternal Jew, the Rothschilds feature prominently, uh, with even footage taken from a Hollywood film that was about the Rothschilds uh, in 1934, a couple of years earlier. And, um, but even before the Nazis, uh, you ready for in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a czarist Russian anti-Semitic invention in French anti-Semitism, in, in, in anti-Semitism of the late 19th century, the Rothschilds are featured as the typical, uh, stereotypical Jewish merchant, banker, financier, the modern version of the medieval uh, uh, money lender, uh, the modern-day Shylock. And that's literally how they're, rep- they're presented. So the success of the emancipation uh, doesn't do away with the anti-Semitism, and it's best expressed through the rise of the Rothschild family. Now, all these subtopics, there's what to expand on, so I hope to have more episodes on this, so be in touch with me about sponsorships of these or other or other favorite topics, whatever you like. And this is Yehudi Gabriel Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at YGE, at, excuse me, the old one, at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Jay Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.